Love Book Online is a unique gift idea unlike anything else. A love book is a book you create that lists all the reasons why you love someone. A love book is created by using an application right on their website. Each book is custom made in hardcover or softcover. You can customize each page with your own cute little stick figure character. You can add love reasons, share your story, use the hundreds of user generated love reasons to help fill your book. I created a love book for my husband as a gift when we were dating and then after we got married I created another one kind of like our story um, and he really enjoys that book even to the state almost 10 years later. A love book online has thousands of different images to help illustrate each page letting your loved one know just how much you love them. It's fun to create and even more fun to receive. Receive 10% off all love books by using the code LOVEALWAYS10. Link is in the description. Hello, it's Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, today's case is well-known in Canada and more recently has become well-known throughout the world. In the early 1990s, Paul and Carla committed multiple crimes against teenage girls in Ontario, Canada. The sexual assault and murder of three teens made them one of the most notorious couples in Canadian history. Paul was born in 1964 in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. He was the youngest of three children. His parents were Kenneth and Marilyn. Their marriage was not a happy one. Kenneth was horrible. He was a horrible, despicable person. He was abusive. He molested Paul's sister and would later face charges for peeping and pedophilia. Marilyn had depression issues and would sometimes just up and leave her family unattended and go and visit her relatives for a few days. Um, eventually, she would retreat into the basement. When Paul was young, he seemed oblivious to his broken home and was described as a happy child. In 1981, when Paul was 16, during an argument between his parents, Paul was told that Kenneth was not his biological father and that Marilyn had an affair. Repulsed by this, Paul began, began to call his mother slut and whore, and she reciprocated by calling him bastard. Paul's first girlfriend, Nadine, became tired of Paul's controlling behavior, and she broke up with him and shortly after started dating one of his friends. Paul retaliated by burning all the things that she'd ever given to him. Paul was employed by a company whose aggressive sales culture deeply influenced him. He bought books and tapes from motivational speakers and applied their lessons when he and his friends would meet young women in bars, uh, seducing many successfully. By the time he began attending the University of Toronto in Scarborough, Paul had developed dark sexual fantasies. 
one of which was building a virgin farm where he would breed virgin girls to rape. He openly, openly discussed his fantasy with his brats. He also enjoyed forceful anal sex and would degrade his girlfriends in public. Over time, his relationships became shorter, and Paul would frequently date more than one woman at a time. In all cases, he was abusive, and he would threaten to kill his girlfriends if they told anyone how he treated them. In 1986, two women got restraining orders against Paul for making obscene phone calls to them. Carla was born in 1970 in Port Credit, Ontario. Her father, Carol, K-A-R-E-L, was a traveling salesman, and her mother, Dorothy, was a geriatric clinic employee. Carla had two younger sisters, Lori and Tammy. Carla was a bright child and a good student, and she was doted on by her father. But when he was drinking alcohol, he was mean and would insult her, Dorothy, and her sisters. From a young age, Carla was described as stubborn and domineering, being unable to compromise and was always willing to speak her mind. Carla started a part-time job at a pet store while she was in high school, and after graduating, she became a full-time veterinary technician. In October 1987, Carla and her co-worker drove to Scarborough to attend a pet, sorry, to attend a pet store conference. Paul and Carla met in a restaurant at Carlos Hotel. It was really late in the evening, so I don't even know why Paul and his friend were out looking for girls at hotel restaurants, but anyway, the friends said that um, there was instant chemistry between Paul and Carla. Paul was 23 and Carla was 17 years old. After having some coffee in the hotel restaurant, they went up to Carla and her co-worker's hotel room that they shared. Their co-worker was making out with Paul's friend and at some point turned on the lights and saw Carla naked on top of Paul and they were having sex, full-on sex. She was a little shocked that Carla moved so fast after only knowing Paul a few hours. Paul lived in Scarborough and Carla lived in St. Catharines, about an hour and a half drive from each other. Paul would drive to see Carla twice a week. At first he seemed like the perfect boyfriend. He had a great job, he was handsome, intelligent, kind, caring, complimentary, but soon he slowly started to control her whole life, just deciding what she would wear, how she should dress, how she should style her hair, what she would eat. He started to call her fat and ugly. Unlike his previous girlfriends, Carla easily submitted to him and encouraged his sexual behavior, which is strange because she was known to always speak her mind and stand up for herself before. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Paul started writing things that Carla needed to work on, a self-improvement list, he called it. And he would expect her to improve on these things the next time they would meet each other. After dating for a while, Carla re revealed that she wasn't a virgin when they first met. Excuse me. 
sorry. It didn't end their relationship, but Paul was really upset by it, and he wanted Carla to make it up to him. On December 24, 1989, Paul and Carla became engaged. Paul received a camcorder as a gift, and back then cameras weren't everywhere like they are today. Video cameras were gigantic and heavy, you would have to hold them on your shoulder. Um, but then handheld cameras came out, and everyone could just film things while holding this little camera in their hand. <clears throat> and Paul recorded everything. He was rarely without his camera. Between 1987 to 1990, women were being raped in Scarborough. Many attacks would take place at night. The victim would usually be getting off the bus after work or from school and be walking home. They would usually be attacked from behind. Some of the victims felt like they were being followed for a few days to a week before the rape. The rapes became more violent as the years went on. Investigators did not get a significant lead until May 1990. And a victim provided them with a description of her attacker's face. The police were able to provide a sketch to the public. Among the 16,000 responses received over the following weeks, some friends and previous girlfriends of Paul said that the, said that the portrait resembled Paul. But officers were so overwhelmed by all of the tips, they weren't able to follow up with their friends and ex-girlfriends right away. In November 1990, two detectives visited Paul while he was still living at his parents' house. He was a little nervous, but most people are when talking to investigators, so it didn't really set off any red flags. He joked with them that his friends had been bugging him about looking like the sketch, and when police asked, Paul consented to give blood, saliva, and hair samples. Unfortunately, they would not be tested for two years. Uh, DNA testing was really new at that time, and it was a long scientific process. I believe there was only one DNA expert working in the area at that time, and he had hundreds of samples to go through. In 1990, Paul had quit his job as a junior accountant to make money by smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canadian border. Sounds like a catch. Sorry. Paul became increasingly obsessed with having sex with Carla's 15-year-old sister, Tammy. Carla knew that Tammy would not want to have sex with Paul if they asked. Duh. Sorry. So Carla came up with a plan to lace Tammy's food with scallium stolen from the pet clinic that she worked at. Tammy had a boyfriend at the time, and she would mention wanting to have sex with him, but Carla would talk her out of it and kind of discourage her from having sex too early and things like that, uh, making sure that she would remain a virgin until Paul raped her. On July 24, 1990, a first attempt during a summer trip involved Carla lacing her sister's meal with Valium, but Tammy woke up after a minute before Paul could rape her. Sometimes they added volume to drinks and would serve them to Tammy and her friends, but most times the girls would mention that the drink was bitter 
and that they just didn't want to finish it. Another attempt happened on December 23rd, following a Christmas dinner at Carla's parents' home. Carla described this as gifting her sister's virginity to Paul for Christmas. This is what Carla would later say about her sister's rape. It was an opportunity to minimize risk, take control, and keep it all in the family. While her sisters slept upstairs, the couple was in the basement rumpus room with Tammy. They gave her a couple alcoholic drinks, spiked with the sleeping pills, and once she was unconscious, they moved her into a spare bedroom in the basement, undressed her, and then Paul proceeded to rape her while Carla held a rag soaked with an anesthetic called halothane over Tammy's nose and mouth. The even sicker part is that Paul recorded everything. Tommy began to vomit and stopped breathing. Carla tried to clear her throat. After failing to revive Tommy, Tammy, the couple dressed her and then moved her back into the rumpus room and cleaned up any evidence before they called 911. Paul and Carla told investigators that they did give her a couple alcoholic drinks and she fell asleep on the couch, but then started to vomit and choke. Investigators noticed Tammy had what looked like small chemical burns around her lips, and when they asked Paul and Carla about it, they said that they moved her around trying to revive her and that it was probably rug burn. Tammy's death was ruled accidental. At the funeral, people noticed Paul kept stroking Tammy's hair, and he seemed even more devastated than Tammy's family. Carla's parents asked Paul and Carla to postpone their wedding a little longer, but Paul and Carla refused, and Carla was really insulted that they had even asked that. They even asked Carla to tone down the wedding a bit because they had to use the wedding expenses to pay for Tommy's funeral, and again Carla was insulted and even told friends, it's not my fault Tommy died and they had to spend money on her funeral. A few months after Tammy's death, Paul and Carla moved to a house in a community called Port Delusi. They would rewatch the Tammy rape tape repeatedly, and they also filmed them themselves role-playing sexual encounters between Paul and Tammy. Carla played the part of her sister and even wore Tammy's clothes and would call herself Tammy. Carla was always inviting Tammy's friends or young co-workers over to their house. I think they were trying to be like the cool adults. They would let the girls have alcoholic drinks and watch, you know, R-rated movies and have like dance parties there. But some of the girls declined thinking that it was odd that a 20 and a 26-year-old would want to hang out with teenagers. On July 7th, 1991, Carla invited a teenager that she had befriended at work to their new home. Because she was underage at the time, we'll call her Jane Doe. Jane Doe passed out from having a laced drink, and Carla told Paul that she had a surprise wedding gift for him, and the two filmed themselves as they both raped her. The victim woke up the next day 
with some nausea, but left without even realizing that she had been raped. On another occasion, they did the same thing with Jane Doe, too. The next day, she felt nauseous and knew something had happened, like she could kind of tell that she wasn't a virgin anymore. Um, I don't remember if it was like a parent or a friend who picked her up to drive her home, but they were like, did you have a good time? And she was like, I don't know what happened, but I am never going back there. I read that sometimes the girls would wake up the next morning and feel embarrassed for getting so drunk and that Paul would kind of be smiling like a Cheshire cat, making them feel even more embarrassed that maybe they flirted with Paul in their drunken state. On June 15th, Paul drove to the city of Burlington, which is about 40 minutes from St. Catharines. He went there to steal license plates for his smuggling business when he met 14-year-old Leslie, who was locked outside of her home in punishment for missing curfew. Leslie was born on July 5, 1976. She had a younger brother. They, they were several, several years apart, uh, but they did have a close relationship. Her father was an oceanographer and her mother was a teacher. Although they had or although she was close with her family, when she turned fourteen, Leslie began to rebel and spent more time away from home. You know, she was a typical teenager who wanted to be with her friends instead of playing family. Uh, but she always telephoned home and kept in touch with her younger brother. A week earlier, some of Leslie's friends had been killed in a terrible car accident. Leslie attended an informal memorial for one of the teens that evening, and the funeral was the next day. As they were leaving the memorial, Leslie and her friend were walking home together, and they would stop and talk and cry along the way, and before she knew it, it was two in the morning. Leslie missed several curfews lately, and her mom just wanted to teach her a lesson and decided to lock all the doors, and then Leslie would just have to sleep on the back porch that night. Um, so I've seen comments in some, uh, on some of the sites when I was researching this story, and like trolls are saying terrible things about Leslie's mom locking the door. And like, as if she doesn't already, like, feel bad already, like, for what, what happens, but like, in those days, it was almost normal to lock your doors to teach your daughter a lesson. And this was a supposedly safe community. Like, if it was the big city, I'm sure it wouldn't have happened. Um, that she wouldn't, like, if there was crime everywhere, she wouldn't have locked the door. But it was a safe community. Like, it's just don't be mean. Like, I couldn't believe some of the things people were saying about Leslie's mom just for this incident. Uh, when Leslie noticed that the doors were locked, she didn't want to wake up her family because she was already going to be in trouble and she didn't want to get in more trouble for waking everyone up at 2 in the morning. So she walked a couple of blocks to a payphone to call her friend to see if the friend could pick her up, um, but the friend said it was just way too late and that she couldn't come pick her up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Leslie walked home, and while she was waiting in the driveway to kind of figure out what to do, Paul pulled up on the street. 
got out of his car, and then after some small talk, he offered Leslie a cigarette. Paul led Leslie to her, his car, where he then pulled a knife on her, blindfolded her, and drove her to his house. Paul woke up Carla saying he had kidnapped a girl go back and go back to sleep. So Carla went back to sleep. Later, when Carla woke up, her and Paul filmed themselves as they raped and tortured Leslie for the next 24 hours. At one point, Leslie said that her blindfold slipped, and shortly after that, they murdered her. They kept her body in the basement while they dined with Carla's parents upstairs for a Father's Day dinner. Later, they dismembered her, encased her remains in concrete blocks, and then threw the blocks into Lake Gibson. On June 29, 1991, Paul and Carla were married. They had a fairy tale wedding at Niagara on the Lake. It is sorry, Niagara on the Lake is just beyond Niagara Falls. It is picturesque and embodies old town charm. Paul and Carla even had a horse-drawn carriage. During the reception, a breaking news story came out on the TVs saying that body parts were found in concrete blocks in Lake Gibson. Uh, things like that didn't happen in the area. Um, and so people were already talking about the missing girl, like just, oh, I hope they find that girl. I hope she's found safe. So they were already kind of communicating about this. Um, so it wasn't unusual that wedding guests were mentioning it throughout the day. Braces and dental records later confirmed that the body parts found at Lake Gibson was Leslie. Paul and Carla honeymooned in Hawaii. The hotel would leave mints on the pillows when doing housekeeping, and when they returned home, Paul expected Carla to always leave a mint on his pillow. On August 1991, Jane Doe was invited over again. Mirroring what happened with Tammy, Jane also stopped breathing. Carla initially called 911, but was able to revive Jane Doe, so she called back saying that the crisis had been solved and the ambulance was recalled without further questioning. On April 16, 1992, Paul and Carla abducted 15-year-old Kristen as she walked from home or walked home from school. It was daylight and there were a number of witnesses. The witnesses were able to give brief descriptions of what the abductors looked like and more importantly that it was a male and a female. Witnesses were also able to give a description of the car, but they did say that it was a Camaro when it was actually a Nissan. Kristen was born on May the 10th, 1976. Her parents were Doug and Donna. Kristen had an older sister. She was a member of a precision ice skating team which won several medals, and she was also a member of the girls' rowing team. Paul and Carla pulled into a church parking lot and Carla pretended to be lost. She had a map unfolded on the hood of the car. This is the days before Google Maps, <laughs> when you actually had to use a paper map to find where you're going. Um, and she called Kristen over to help with directions. 
While Christine was helping Carla at the front of the car, Paul came behind her with a knife and forced her into the car. Kristen struggled. Paul hit her, and as they were forcing her into the car, Kristen's shoe fell off. They raped and tortured her for three days before supposedly strangling her with the same cord that was used to kill Leslie. During her captivity, Kristen was never blindfolded. She was forced to drink large amounts of alcohol, watch the Leslie rape tape, and act submissive to Paul. She became confrontational by the end, calling him a bastard, just like his mom did, and she would tell him, I don't know how your wife can stand being around you. She was severely beaten before her death. Once again, the couple left the body in their home while they dined at Carla's parents' home. They later washed and cut her hair before they threw her body into a ditch in Burlington, which was actually close to the cemetery where Leslie was buried. On December 27, 1992, Paul savagely beat Carla with a heavy-duty flashlight, leaving her with bruises, a broken rib, and two very black eyes. She went to work that following Monday and tried to pass off her injuries as a result of a car accident, but her co-workers didn't believe her and they called her parents, who insisted in taking Carla to the hospital. This happened a few times where Carla had come in with bruises or sore ribs, and Carla always had an excuse, but the co-workers didn't believe her and would call her parents. Um, her parents would come to pick her up and she would stay with them for a few days, but Paul would usually threatened to tell her parents the truth about Tammy's death, placing the blame on Carla, and so Carla would come go back to him. This time, though, Carla did file charges against Paul, and he was briefly arrested. By coincidence, the DNA samples Paul had given two years earlier were treated and positively identified him as the Scarborough Rapist. And on February 17, 1993, Paul was arrested. When Carla filed charges against Paul, she moved to Brampton, Ontario with her aunt and uncle for protection. Shortly after, she told them that Paul was both the Scarborough rapist and the killer of Leslie, Kristen, and Tam. Her uncle and aunt told her to see a lawyer immediately. On February 3rd, 1993, Carla met with a lawyer asking for full immunity in exchange for her cooperation. Instead, Carla was given the option of taking a 12-year prison term for manslaughter, or she would face charges for the three murders as well as other crimes. Carla took the manslaughter deal and agreed to tell everything she knew, and she would also testify against Paul at his trial. Carla claimed that she suffered from battered wife syndrome. She said Paul would repeatedly threaten to tell her family the truth about Tammy's death, saying it was all saying it was all Carla's idea. She was abused for years and went along with him because she was forced to. When asked about the day that Paul abducted Leslie, uh, this was the time when Paul woke Carla up saying I kidnapped a girl, go back to sleep. 
Arla said when she woke up later that day to let the dog outside, she saw two champagne glasses in the dining room, and they were really expensive champagne glasses from France that were never used, and she was really mad that Paul used them. Not that he kidnapped a girl, but that he used these new champagne glasses. She told investigators Paul recorded everything and that he had tapes of Leslie and Kristen that she was forced to watch over and over and that the tapes were hidden in the house. There was a 71-day search done inside the house, but no tapes were found by investigators. So Carla was scheduled to do a walkthrough at the house to tell her lawyer you know, this happened here and that happened there with the rapes and murder of Leslie and Kristen. So this would be something I would think is scheduled. So this is, Carla knew that this day was coming. Um, it would be, you know, a traumatic day. This is the house where she was abused as well as horrible things happened to these other girls. So I don't know what she was thinking, but... Carla decided to wear a schoolgirl uniform. She wore a plaid skirt, a blouse, a tie, and a vest. Uh, Kristen went to Catholic school and was wearing a uniform when they abducted her. Like, why, why would Carla decide to wear this type of clothing? Like, just wear jeans and a t-shirt. Um, so during the walkthrough, she would say things like, oh, that's the closet we kept Leslie in, and uh, Paul raped Kristen here. And then she would be like, you know, what happened to the furniture? Did it get damaged in the search? And then, you know, it was really expensive. I wanted to get it back. Then later in the bathroom, she was asking, you know, my where, where's my perfumes? They were really expensive. Why would people just go and take perfumes um, in the basement, you know, where Leslie and Kristen's bodies were kept and where she herself was abused? She was kind of glancing into boxes and I guess there was a book in a box that she wanted and they said that she couldn't take it and she smugly was like, oh, I guess I have to buy a new one. Like it was just really unusual behavior. You can kind of... I believe it's on YouTube that you can kind of watch the walkthrough. And to me, her, yeah, it's just unusual behavior for that kind of a walkthrough. Uh, Paul's lawyer received instructions from Paul as to where the tapes were hidden. They were actually in the bathroom, tucked in a hole behind a light fixture. Instead of turning them in, the lawyer hid most of the tapes for 17 months hoping to hold it against Carla when she testified. And so, like, this is really unusual because he was an experienced lawyer, so he should have known that he could not do that. He was charged with obstruction of justice, but it was later acquitted. Once the tapes were reviewed by investigators and lawyers, it was clear that Carla was not a scared wife, but an active participant. Some prosecutors declared that had they known what was on the tapes, they would have never proposed the 12-year manslaughter charge. And Carla's deal became known as the deal with the devil. 
jury selection for the trial began on May the 1st, 1995. The trial lasted for four months, and Carlos spent 17 days on the stand. Paul also took the stand to testify. Basically, Paul and Carla would blame each other, saying it was the other person's idea to kidnap and to murder Leslie and Kristen. They just kind of blamed each other. Parts of the tapes were played in the courtroom, and to protect the victims, only sound was played, which I would think would be horrifying to hear. Um, anyways, but the, the video was shown, um, the video showing the assaults on the victims was viewed by the judge, the jury, lawyers, and Paul. And sound only was played throughout the courtroom. On September the 1st, 1995, after eight hours of deliberation, their jury found Paul guilty of all charges, which was two counts of first-degree murder, kidnapping, forcible confinement, and aggravated sexual assault, and one count of committing an indignity to a human body. Canada does not have a death penalty, and Paul was sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years. He was declared a dangerous offender, um, so it's considered unlikely that he would ever be granted parole. Uh, he's kept segregated from the other inmates because of the threats made to him. And on one occasion in 1999, a group of five prisoners tried to storm the segregated area and had to be dispersed by riot police. In 2000, both Ontario Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada turned down Paul's efforts to appeal his murder conviction. In 2006, Paul's lawyer said that he, or that his client, had confessed to 10 additional sexual assaults, but I have not heard anything on those. Um, Paul's been incarcerated at a maximum security prison in Bath, Ontario. In February 19, or sorry, in February 2018, Paul qualified for parole and has since had two parole applications rejected. His latest parole application came in June of 2021. In pleading his case, Paul described himself as a man filled with stress and anxiety stemming from over 10,000 days without meaningful human interaction. He describes his punishment as cruel and inhuman, and that he has changed. He is no longer preoccupied with fantasies. Without a doubt, I am low risk. I have fought all deviant sexual behavior for two years. So he's been in prison for 25 years and he's fought them for two years. Um, he says, I expected to be catered to. I was a male chauvinistic pig. He also said that he cries himself to sleep every night for what he did. But I always say to him, like, ask myself, are you crying because of what you did or because you were caught? Uh, Paul's parole lawyer didn't offer him much help, stating that Paul had made no progress or completed any programming since his first hearing, and he has no release plan prepared if he is paroled. The parole officer rec recommended that Paul be denied parole. 
The most impactful statements during the hearing came from the victim's parents. The parents of Leslie and Kristen described Paul as an incurable sadist and psychopath who still poses a threat to society. The presiding judge deliberated for only one hour before turning down Paul's request. When the investigators first started watching Paul's hidden tapes, uh, they found several tapes containing rapes made on unconscious underage girls like Jane Doe. Investigators had to find and tell all the Jane Doe's what happened and some had no idea that it even happened. They thought that the alcohol affected them too much and that they fell asleep. Uh, the tapes also, or sorry, the tapes were concealed for several years to protect the victims and then they were finally destroyed other with, along with other material in 2001. The house that Carla and Paul lived in had been abandoned since Paul's arrest in February 1993. The ground floor windows were boarded up after being shattered by vandals and there was graffiti spray painted all over the house. In 2005, the house was completely demolished and Paul's sports car was towed away to be scrapped. Carla's plea deal was severely criticized in Canadian society, and most recently around the world. But unfortunately, there is nothing that could be done. The deal was done. Carla was released from prison in 2005. Hours after her release, Carla grants an interview to CBC's French-language TV channel in Montreal. I personally didn't find anything interesting about the interview. She basically played the victim. I was like, I did my time for what I did. Sorry. <laughs> um, she changed her name, and after media scrutiny, she moved to the French Caribbean islands in 2007. She married the brother of her lawyer and has three children. Uh, she has returned to Canada and lives in Montreal, Quebec. So I feel bad for her kids, who are probably teenagers now, because they've only heard her narrative about being an abused wife and probably being forced to do these things. Um, so, like, as far as I hear, like, people still shout things out to her. She's changed her name, but I'm sure that they call her Carla. Like, I just think, what if her kids decide, like, let's look up mom's old name. Or let's look up the sister that tragically passed away before Christmas that year. And then, you know, they'll see the real story and just be shocked because they've only heard this narrative. Uh -huh, there are just so many things that could have possibly changed the outcome. If the DNA results came out sooner, Paul might have been caught earlier. But like I said, there was only that one person doing all of these tests all of these tests. Uh, it was said that when the rapes stopped in Scarborough, other rapes started happening in St. Catharines. And back then, jurisdictions didn't really communicate with each other unless they had to. 
to so like now investigators could look up rapes in the area and then all of the this information comes up but back then you would have to you know call and like it's extra like yeah just lots of communication through the phone so i think that they just probably was like that we won't deal, deal with that um leslie was from burlington but her body was found in st catherine's and Kristen was from st catherine's and her body was found near burlington so had investigators contacted each other maybe they would have found a link and then paul would have been caught earlier like it's just frustrating and tragic some of these things that could have prevented been prevented <clears throat> paul was abusive there's no question about that but carla being the scared wife or like was she a scared wife was she an active participant i'm sure you can tell by my tone throughout this that i do not believe i did at the beginning years when this was i i did believe that she was but then i guess as i got older i just thought like if my boyfriend even mentioned wanting to have sex with my younger sister, I would be like, you're gone. There is absolutely no way that that is even happening. <clears throat> or if he talked about kidnapping a girl or having, you know, a virgin farm, like, he would just be gone. Like, I would not, I would not <laughs> allow somebody to do that. I would not be a, a participant in that. Like, there's right and there's wrong and uh, yeah it's just frustrating um i think that paul and carla together was destructive like what do they call it deadly attraction or wicked attraction uh, experts say that rapists will sometimes stay rapists and not necessarily turn into murderers because it's all about control that's what they're after being able to control somebody not necessarily the sexual act itself. But the Scarborough rapes became more violent through time. So would Paul have become a murderer? Or would he, like if, or was it that Carla was encouraging him that he, yeah. Or would Carla have been involved in something like this if she had never met Paul? Like we'll never know. So why am I telling this horrific story? <clears throat> um, I like to think of it as a cautionary tale. Like Paul and Carla look like everyone else. Maybe even better looking than the average couple. The media has called them the Ken and Barbie killers because of their good looks. So I think it's an important reminder that serial killers and rapists aren't the stranger danger creepy person in the corner. They can be your neighbor, your coworker, your friends, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, th three lives were lost and several lives have been changed because of these two people's horrible actions. Thank you for listening today.